All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll be in verses 9 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with. It's this, though our sins affect creation, God's people, and the nations, God makes redemption a reality by his grace alone. Let me say that again. Though our sins affect creation, God's people, and the nations, God makes redemption a reality by his grace alone. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, now as we're stepping into this, uh, just a reminder, as we're approaching Easter Sunday, this is the great news of the gospel. Do remember that the warning of judgment gives way to the character of God, that his goal is to use judgment to call us to redemption. Right? Judgment doesn't happen instantaneously in this case. It's something that is warned of for a number of decades before it actually comes to pass. And even then, redemption is not cut off. He still works in and nations. And that's very important for us because it's talent that we've been given, bury it in the ground, safe and sound, and risk nothing. And yet, what did we hear from the mouth of Christ about that? That'll get you cast into outer darkness. That will cause you to suffer way more than risking and losing and being maligned by the world. And so it's very important that we keep these things in view. And we're going to hear it here that the purpose of redemption is mission. The purpose of redemption is that we would go and call others into the family of God. But there's something that's critical to that process. So let me ask you this question. What role does communication play in the health of your relationships with others? How critical is communication to how healthy your marriage is? Parenting, friendships, work relationships, much less church, right? So it is critically important that we be able to have a language in which we can understand each other and that we would be able to appreciate what's being said, that we would actually be able to, to help to heal and bind together. But how often are words used in a destructive fashion, either intentionally or unintentionally? Right? Like what I often say when I do premarital counseling is you have to speak to be understood. Like if you're going to speak in a way that, that, that the other person can't understand, you can't charge them for not being able to read your mind in the dark. And in the same way, you, you should seek to understand when someone is speaking to you, right? 
Now, remember, God is a God of words. How does creation come into being? And then through his word, he speaks it into being. How are we to understand the gospel if he doesn't give us the ears to hear? It is, it is for him to grant so that we would be able to hear the gospel and then be able to share it with one another. So communication is a critical aspect of discipleship. It's both in terms of what you say and what you hear. And that's what we're going to see here is that if he doesn't change that phenomenon, then nothing can get done. Nothing can change. And there's a reason why it's been problematic. There's a curse that has been cast over all of mankind that starts at the Tower of Babel, which is the backdrop for this particular uh, uh, call for redemption and reconciliation. But let's step back into the text and see what, what the Lord is offering to us. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. So let me pause for just a second. At, remember, the, the day of the Lord is not a singular day. It is a reference to any time that the Lord breaks into history for any reason. Now, again, we talked about this. You may say, well, I thought God was present all the time. He is. But there are unique ways in which he breaks into the flow of history and reveals himself in unique ways that essentially are days of the Lord. He sees it as one day, years and a thousand years as a day, which is why you can have the beginning of a process, which he's referring to as Pentecost, and yet not have the final judgment occur for whatever time after that that he decides. But we understand that the day of the Lord has broken in at the incarnation of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, this is all part of the day of the Lord and in his undoing the curse of Babel at Pentecost. Now, what is the curse of Babel? Well, in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, there's a group of people who sound like us. They were the original suburbanites. They had found this really sweet parcel of land called Shinar. And they buried their talent in the sands of Shinar. They said very clearly, we know what God said, that we are to go out, that we are to expand the garden temple, but we don't want to do that. That sounds like suffering. That sounds like it could be hard. We got it really good here in Shinar. The, the soil's good. The agriculture's good. We've all agreed on the laws. We like each other. Let's just keep what we got. So, in addition to that, they built this tower, which actually is a ziggurat, which is a stepped pyramid, if you will. And they wanted to control when and where God could break into history. They wanted to decide they would engage God whenever they climbed up the top of this thing and would keep him from just going wild and running around. How'd that go? For those of you who know the story. What's interesting, what he described it as, is he said they were haughty. He said they were prideful. This was an act of pride and arrogance on their part to try to do that. And so what does he do but scatter them? And he messes up their language. Now, it doesn't mean that nobody can understand each other thereafter. They, there was still ways in which people could communicate with each other. But what they couldn't do was the redemptive functions for which he had created them and set them apart. What they couldn't do is decide when and where they could hear and understand the Lord. Now it would be something that he would decide. They no longer had that freedom, as it were. They'd abused it. And so that particular cause, being pride, and that particular curse has been over us until Acts chapter 2. After Christ had been crucified, 
and had resurrected and ascended, if you remember, he had promised that the Holy Spirit would come. And when the Holy Spirit would fall on the people, that redemption would break out. And it's exactly what happened. The disciples were preaching each in their own tongue, right? A bunch of folks thought, man, these cats are drunk. Like, no, it's early in the day. That'd be weird. They'd have to go hard all night long to be this drunk this early. And so they realized that the, the Spirit was breaking in. And you remember they had these little tongues of fire that were over their heads indicating that they were the temples of the Holy Spirit. They were the dwelling. If you remember, it transformed the circumstance. Thousands of people came to Christ that day. This was the down payment of the fulfillment of the promise that would go on and continues today. We are the beneficiaries of Pentecost. You can understand the gospel. You are able to know that you are in union with Christ because of God undoing the curse of Babel. We are able to encourage each other and participate in the kingdom and mission because God did what he said he would do and continues to do. And so praise be to God that it's not on us to try to make someone else understand. How do you make someone else understand that there's this guy who lived a few thousand years ago that died for you? And if he hadn't, you'd burn in hell. And he rose from the grave. He's not around here anymore. He ascended in the clouds. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for you. You can't really see him. Uh, You can't really hear from him exactly. Doesn't work quite like that. But trust me, it's what you need to be saved. Praise be to God that that is not incumbent on us to try to make sense of. And we get in trouble when we do. When we try to turn it into an issue of logic and reason or take out certain parts because they're kind of hard to understand, that's when it gets tricky. Instead of trusting that the Spirit will continue to do what he did at Pentecost, which is make sense out of the childish babble that comes forth from our mouths. Because we are still a mix of saints sinner. And so, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. For what purpose? that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, when we get to Romans 10, you're going to remember this verse uh, more than likely because it shows up in Romans 10. Essentially, it says, how will people know unless someone comes and shares the gospel, right? How will they know unless they hear? But what he said was, any and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No qualification. Doesn't matter where you're from. No matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, for you to call upon the name of the Lord in humility, you will be saved. And you may say, it's that simple? And then it gets that complex because it doesn't end there. That's that's just the beginning of our being transformed into the image of Christ, us being able to live out uh, the calling and the mission. And so he makes it very clear that they will be saved not just from something, and that's very important, and I think you need to wrestle with that because so many of us, I think our understanding of salvation really is weighted as being from something instead of for something. It is from, don't get me wrong. There's plenty to celebrate in what the Lord forward into the missional future that he has for us. And so the Lord says that he saved them, so they, they, or he, he allows them to be saved by calling on the name of the Lord, and serve him with one accord. 
That's been the entire book of Romans that we've been going through is this call to unity. You have a, a purpose, and there are things in which you are unified that allow you to overlook the things that are not similar that you're disunified in. You can lay those things aside for the sake of the mission. And as we all know, when we forget that, we come at each other. We get bored. There's a malaise. We've we, we got to do something with that energy. And so we have a tendency to turn on each other instead of remember what it was that unified us, instead of having a purpose that helps us go forward. Now, this is, this is just where we are right now in some sense, right? Like, if we look at the history of Christ Community Church, if you can remember back before COVID, can anybody remember life before COVID? You don't have to go all the way back to the Atari 2600. You can move a little bit forward in history. But there was a time before COVID when around here, uh, things were going pretty good, right? Like there was a lot, of, a lot of excitement and we were running 250 to 300 on Sunday and we felt like we were making some progress. The land had been paid off. We were talking, there were pictures of a beautiful building. And then everything stopped. Or so it seemed, right? We hit Paul. We had to go into maintenance mode because we were trying to survive. We didn't know what was around the corner. We found ourselves to be horrific false prophets, fortunately, on this side of, of Christ. So we didn't have to be stoned to death for all the predictions we got wrong. I, myself, high hand numbered among you. I was like, oh, we'll be good by June, at least. I didn't know it was going to be like June of 2023. Just didn't, I forgot the last part. And so let's be honest, we, we have been just kind of fighting to find our footing in the midst of what has felt like a swiftly tilting planet. Mission, by and large, we hit pause. We weren't thinking that way. We were just trying to, hey, we just got to get through this. And I'm not saying that was wrong, but that's done something to us. And coming out of it, we were excited to see each other again, which is good, and I'm glad we were. That's very important. But we got aroused from the malaise. And this is not an accusation leveled at every single person in exactly the same way, but you just have to look at your own heart. What are some ways in which you're still kind of functioning like, yeah, that Fauci guy says there's probably another wave coming because he, you know, needs to stay in the news. I don't know what's going on. But, but we, are, we comfortable, are, we, are we to a place yet where we believe that the time is now for mission? Where we can come out from under the malaise of just maintenance and survival and can turn our gaze to whether it be a mission trip. You can actually travel for the most part now. Or serving in the community in some way. Because the Lord our God reigns. Not because of the world is going to be topsy-turvy from here to the end. Right? It's always going to be something. It's, we're east of Eden. It's a fallen world. It's not yet redeemed. And so how can we begin to change our mindset so that we look like these people, that we could serve together the purposes of God with one accord? And he goes on. He declares, from beyond the rivers of Cush, which is the furthest point to the south, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So he's referring to the generation that was born in exile that will return and make an offering to him, which again is evidence that in exile, they didn't forget mission. They continued to make sure that their children, the generation that had been entrusted to them, would know the Lord their God. Otherwise, how would there be children to return? How would they have known who to return to? This is very important for us. It's instructive to us that regardless of the circumstances, 
Our mission field remains the same, our primary mission field. We must raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. And it cannot be only what they're not supposed to do, but what they get to do. We have to give them some evidence that, that there is a resurrected life. How in the world could what we, we offer in negation compete with what the world offers in great joy and freedom? You can't. You know, if you just tell them, hey, if, if you do that, God's going to kill you, and then they do it, and he doesn't, then what? Or you say, hey, if you do that, you're not going to be able to enjoy it as much. They do it, and they enjoy it just fine. Is that the best way for us is to try to keep them from doing it or to train them up how to maintain the freedom that the Lord is going to grant them in Jesus, that he's granted to us? So much of that is we're, we're too busy maintaining and not involved enough in mission. There's not enough life to offer if we're not careful. He goes on, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So who's he talking to? Is he talking to the superstars, the, the religious folks that went into exile and maintained and were awesome? No. He's talking to the people who had sinned against him and deserved to go into exile. Who deserved judgment. So this is him offering redemption by grace alone. Which is a great gift to us to remember. that The point of judgment is to point us to grace. Is to call us back to him. Remember what he said in chapter 2. When Matt preached on, on the call of the remnant to be hidden in the Lord. There is always an offer for restoration as long as there is breath in your lungs. It is the great grace of the Lord our God. We should move from your midst, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. This is a great warning to us. How often does the arrogant know that they're arrogant? How often do they get it? I've yet to meet somebody who says, I have the spiritual gift of arrogance. I'm awesome, and you're lucky. Never said it quite that direct, but it was in the, it was in the meal somewhere, right? Like, but, but it's important that we see you have to have ears to hear, and, and, and I can't break that person. You can't break that person, and you can't break you if you are that person. Only the Lord can grant you the ears to hear. You should know enough to be crying out, Lord, if there be any arrogant, haughty way within me, would you help me to mortify it, O Lord? And by the way, that's not a one-time prayer. We should be praying it often because it is the thing that the Lord finds most obnoxious in his people. It is the thing that stirs his ire more than all of the things that stir our ire. And notice what he says, I'll remove them. And you're not going to be haughty in this mountain. You don't get to decide who I am. I decide who you are, and that is better for you because what you would decide for yourself is inhuman. Looks nothing like Jesus. It looks nothing like the Psalm 8 humanity that I have designed you to be. It looks nothing like a cruciform people. Now notice what the result of this is. So he redeems them. He removes the haughty from them. Right? Removes the, the, the thing that's going to cause them to be destroyed. Praise be to God. 
And he says, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. This description is very similar, though it is in Hebrew, uh, to, the, to the Greek that is in the Sermon on the Mount. When, when, when the Lord calls for us to be a humble and lowly people. It is also very similar to Christ's description of himself, which you should memorize, in addition to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which is God's description of himself. It's the only place Jesus describes himself, and he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Should this not also be the description of us? Should that not also be a a common prayer that we would pray, Lord, help me to be gentle and lowly? Something that, if you're honest, it does not come natural. And passive-aggressive is arrogant too, you know. So be careful of, of looking at something and saying it's not gentle and lowly just because it's, it's lower in tone. It's not about tone. It's not about deed, it's about heart. And so people look like. So what, what does he give us here that could be helpful to us? Well, these folks, these folks who are being shaped in the image of Christ, these cruciform folks, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they, when they sin, they run to the Lord, not from him. Why else do you need to seek refuge in the Lord? When life gets hard and fear and anxieties rise, they run to the Lord, not from him. When they have doubts, which you will have, when they have questions, which you will have, they run to the Lord. When they're angry about what's going on in the world, they run and seek refuge in the Lord because they desire to glorify and honor him with their actions. This, you could argue, is the call to love the Lord your God. You don't, you don't seek refuge in something you don't love, correct? And this is a canary in the coal mine for some of us. We don't show up to God very often. We really don't seek refuge in him much. He is kind of, you know, the fail-safe. He's the disability insurance, if you will, as opposed to the reason for life, as opposed to the reason for our being. And this is also, you could argue, part of the maintenance phase. That seeking refuge in the Lord is part of maintaining our worship, part of maintaining our identity in the Lord. And then he turns to things that have to do with loving our neighbor, the more missional-focused type things. Not only do these folks seek refuge in the Lord, they shall do no injustice. Again, I want to remind you. I know the word justice has been twisted and turned in lots of different ways, which is why it's critical that we come back to what does it mean in the mouth of the biblical author? What does it mean in the context of Scripture? Justice always deals with how we deal with the marginalized. Always. Right? Primarily. And and there's a point to this. It doesn't not include rich folks, right? It's not saying you can be, as, as some ideologies would say, You can mistreat rich folks. In fact, the world would be a better place if we just got rid of all of them and redistributed their stuff, as if that's the cure. I've been reading uh, Thomas More's Utopia, which is a fascinating book. It's only about 85 pages long, depending on the edition that you have, and how it captured the imagination of centuries of people. We're still trying to live out Utopia. 
And at the base of it is this longing for what was called the golden age. That there was this time in history when everybody got along and the earth just gave its fruit and everything was fine. Sounds like Eden, interestingly. But even Eden, you had to work. Even Eden had to be tilled and built. And and there was stuff for Adam and Eve to do in their progeny. Right? There was the cultural mandate. Um, Right? And so instead of us wanting to receive what is the new heavens and the new earth, which is far greater than even what utopia proposes to offer, there's a process from here to there between the now and the not yet for us to be formed into those kind of people and to live out those kinds of things as evidence of what it will look like. So we are to be, just like God, a just people. Solomon, when he is asked... He he prays to the Lord, and the Lord says, ask anything you want, I'll grant it to you. He doesn't pray for riches. He doesn't pray for lots of stuff. He doesn't pray. What he prays for, actually, is the wisdom to be just. You remember the story that occurs right after he prays for this? The two women bring in the child claiming it's, one claims it's hers, the other claims it's hers, and there's the dead child, and so Solomon in wisdom, and in this interesting stroke of justice, calls for a sword. He says, okay. I'll cut the kid in half, and each of you will get some. Okay? Each of you get half. And he knew that the real mother would say, don't do that, just give it to her. And the other woman was like, no, 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 cut it in half. I'll take my piece. And it revealed to him which, whose it was. And what's interesting is these women are described in a very particular way. Do you know how they're described in the text? They're prostitutes. Why would he care that the king of Israel... What are a couple of prostitutes arguing over some kid? Why would, he, why would he step into that? Because he had prayed for wisdom to be just, and it mattered to him uh, in, in this, this way that justice would extend even to the marginalized. Because if you won't care for the least of these, how can you be trusted to care for anybody? And so we need to be a people who evidence this justice in how we live. And again, I know for some of you, the, t- the moment the word justice drops, all kind of stuff comes flooding in. You have got to push back against that biblically. You cannot let the devil take this word from us. You cannot, in any way, shape, or form, render everything that falls under that umbrella as an epithet, as something bad. No, it is not. It is the heart of the Lord our God. Right? Remember what he said. How you treat the poor, we, we, we studied this in Proverbs, How you treat the poor is how you treat your maker because they bear his image. And so we can't fix everything because the poor we will have with us always, but we, we also don't have the liberty to do nothing. And so to be a cruciform people, these are the kinds of things missionally that we should care about. He goes on. And that they speak no lies. Now, how's this missional? Well, uh, part, of, part of actually being missional is to tell the truth about the gospel, even the hard parts. To admit that to be a Christian, bad bill of goods, that it's going to be some sort of on-earth utopia. No, it is not. For those of you who have been in church any length of time, is that true? Where is the perfect church? Because I want to put in my application. You may, she's saying we're not perfect. No, me neither. Where's the perfect pastor? 
The guy who will always remember your birthday, remember the anniversary of the death of anybody significant to you, who will remember any time you've ever uh, told him to pray for something, to, to remember all of what it is your idiosyncrasies are and how to interact with those. Who is that guy? I'm not he. Now, that didn't let me off the hook to care about you and try to remember your birthday and pray for you and try to remember your idiosyncrasies. But I'm going to fail. And you're going to fail too. Which is why we go back to, on the day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And amen. That is true, and we can't keep that from some people that we really wish they would suffer because of their sin. We can't also lie to people who desperately need the gospel that we really don't want to come to our church. We really don't want them to be part of our family. We need to be a people who speak the truth in love. We need to be a people who recognize that the family is big. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 19 that you need to know about. In Isaiah 19, God makes it very clear that he loves, get this now, the Egyptians. And by the way, another group of people called the Assyrians. And it's interesting, he uses very similar language to what's here. He says, on that day, they shall all speak the same language. And there will be an altar in their midst. How'd that altar get there, by the way, if somebody wasn't missional? If somebody didn't go into Egypt and tell these people about Jesus or about the Lord loving them, he says, and on that day, many are going to respond and become my people. Not, not, we're not talking about Israelites out of Egypt. That did happen, by the way. He makes it very clear, I'm going to redeem Egyptians. And in addition to that, there'll be a highway and there's going to be a bunch of Assyrians and the Egyptians will be there and the Assyrians will be there. Oh, and by the way, the Israelites will be there. And they're all going to worship together. What does that sound like? Revelation 7. Now think about this for a second. How did Jonah react to his call to go love the Ninevites? He even got to say something mean to him. Remember his sermon? Like, can you imagine? Hey, 40 days and you're all dead if you don't do better. God loves you. That was it. And they repented that from the king on down. He even called for the cows to repent. I don't know how that works out, but... Praise be to God, something was going on there. Like even creation was being redeemed. But you remember fast and loving, forgiving and merciful. That's why I didn't even want to come here. There are skulls of my ancestors and pyramids outside this place. How could you redeem such an awful and horrible people? That's my translation. And remember what God said to him in great grace? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you? Egyptians aren't a whole lot better than these folks. Like, he's essentially saying, you will be redeemed into a kingdom with your enemies. Do we still get that? Remember what Jesus said about enemies and what we're to do with them? We're to love them. That ain't easy. That's going to require great humility. I don't know how to do that. I have strong opinions. I have a strong personality. I, I, I don't know how to love my enemies apart from Christ shaping in me a cruciform heart and mind and reminding me that I was his enemy. Remember Ephesians 2? Everybody's the enemy of God who is not redeemed. 
And yet he chooses to bestow his grace alone upon us. So we need to tell the truth of this gospel, even to our enemies. And he goes on. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Now this is how we deal with each other. This goes back, actually circles back into loving of neighbor, but within community, that we would not deceive one another. That we would not try to benefit from one another. We wouldn't try to get over on one another. We would not use our power to belittle one another. In fact, if you're wondering, is this just some Old Testament stuff? Let's, let's, let's go to Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment, if you don't mind. We'll look at verses 9 through 17 and listen to the similarity of the language and concept. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what he's saying essentially is don't try to tell each other that one is better than the other. It's the same problem they were having in Rome, if you remember, in the Roman church. One group was trying to elevate itself over others. One group was trying to say, we deserve God more than you do. That's the great lie. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds every need you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so what do we get from this? What, what's the benefit of being a cruciform people? Well, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. How many of you are exhausted from fear and anxiety of not knowing what the future holds? How many of you are exhausted by wondering what, what next in this country? What next in this world? What next in my community? What next in this church? See, if we want true peace, peace that comes from the Lord, we must dwell in him and look like him. That is the great beneficence, not just in the new heavens, new earth. But we get to participate in that sense even now. It has an echo of Psalm 23. That those of us who are in the shepherd and walk with the shepherd benefit from the peace of the shepherd. And we should want other people to experience that as well. And so listen to what Walt Kaiser says about this passage. He says, the new people of God will carry three marks. Meekness, that attitude of life in which a person does not exalt himself above God or another person, but bows the head in submission to one's Lord. Humility, an attitude of genuine dependence on God as opposed to a self-satisfied indifference and bold assertion of one's rights above everyone else's. We need to sit in that one for a while. Trust in the name of the Lord, a decision to seek refuge in the character, works, and truths of the living God. 
So my question for us is, what would it look like for us, for you, to be a humble and lowly people as a result of God's promised redemption by his grace alone? What would it look like for us to be cruciform? Let me give you some, some offerings that are not intended to be uh, the whole of it, right? Well, first and foremost, we should be a repentant people. That is a clear hallmark of humility. If you are not, have no knowledge of any sin you've committed in uh, uh, some time, you should be concerned because you're still a mix of saint sinner. You are not yet perfect. You're not yet perfected is the better way to put it. And so we should be a people who are quick to repent when we know we have been wrong. Being wrong is not the worst thing in the world. You're going to do it a lot because you don't know everything. And I don't either. We should also bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's not just that we don't just rush to saying, hey, I said I'm sorry. We're good. We're done. The conversation's over. No, it is not, depending on the circumstance. We should also be a forgiving people. Cruciform people forgive and forgive quickly but not cheaply. True forgiveness is, is, is restoration. It's restorative. It allows for both parties to continue in dignity to have the image of God borne out in them, to use their gifts and abilities. We also should be a missional people that we would share. We would give away what we have because we recognize that we don't work on scarcity principle. That we would be a generous church. And when there's a need, if we got money in the storehouse... Even if we had an earmark for something that we really wanted, we'd be willing to help now if now was the need. That we would also be, be willing to, to, to go and invite and to, and to offer the, the great re resurrection life that is in us. That we would display it in spirit and truth, not just in verbiage, but word and deed. So these are just a, a few ways in which we would look more humble and lowly, more like Jesus, more cruciform. And if you want to uh, do a deep dive on what more that looks like, study the person of Christ. Go to the Gospels and look at how did he go about his business? How did he handle things? How did he handle when, when there was a group of people who weren't doing it right? Remember that one? Some folks weren't doing it right, as if anybody ever did it right. And the disciples were like, hey, there's some people that ain't doing it right. You don't call down fire from heaven? Do we kill them? I said, no. No, if, if, they're, if, they're, if they're for us, they're not against us. And who are we? Who is any of us to say, hey, we're doing it right? And you'd do well to take notes. As if there's not a diversity in the kingdom and its display. And then what are the ways in which you are seeking refuge in the Lord? Because if you're not doing that first off, the other doesn't matter. That's what's going to help you to be cruciform. Where are you preparing yourself well for worship? Where are you engaging in the presence of the Lord, whether it's through your reading or prayer or even community? This is something that we do together. It's not just about alone. It's what we do together as well. And so this is a critical step for us to assess, am I actually seeking refuge in the Lord our God? And am I doing that because I understand he has redeemed me by grace alone? That though my sins have been costly to everything around me, the Lord still welcomes me into his presence to redeem me, to renew me, to restore me. This is the wonderful Easter message. So Zephaniah 3, 9 through 13 teaches us that though our sins affected creation, God's people, and the nations, God makes redemption a reality 
by his grace alone, and we know that that is through faith alone in Christ alone. No matter who you are and what part of this church you are, that your genuine desire would be to be a cruciform people, that you would long for the resurrection power that's at work in you to display Christ to the world. And that we would be willing, as much as it is necessary, to suffer for his good name. And that our desire would be that God would be glorified and the family would get bigger. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our sin doesn't have the final say. Father, thank you that grace is mysterious and it can be frustrating in some ways. And thank you that it is not bound by our understanding or our logic or even who we would pick. God, thank you that your, your, your grace is part of your eternal character. Thank you that it is unchanging, that we can trust that what you say is true and that the promises that you have fulfilled and are fulfilling in our midst and as we arc toward the, the last advent of Christ. God, we thank you that we can trust in those things and we can rest upon those things, that we can graze and lie down in those promises knowing that none can hurt us, though it may hurt. God, thank you for the peace that surpasses all understanding. Thank you that you give us clear ways in which we can live and move and enjoy you. Help us to do that this day, this Lord's Day Sabbath. Give us a fresh taste of your goodness that we would be a more thankful people because of what we've heard. That we would not begin with where we have failed or where we lack, but we would, we would begin with where you have called us, which is to yourself. And from there, be empowered in the Holy Spirit, to repent, to forgive, and to, to move in mission. God, would you give us a fresh sense, a joy to our salvation this day. In Christ's name, amen.